but he is fire ghost sappers time to high frequency ghost sapper ghost projector guns each sold separately ghostbusters from kenner hi i'm holly fry and this is drawn the story of animation Odds are that if you're interested in animation, you probably can look around your home or your office and see at least a couple of toys or other items that have your favorite character on them. Impressive. I know I do. For me, it's a lifestyle choice. Most impressive. In addition to all of my Star Wars memorabilia, my entire sewing room is decorated with Lilo and Stitch merch. Three days ago, I bought Stitch at the shelter. I paid $2 for him. See the snap? I own it. So, as something of a self-confessing super consumer, I wanted to find out everything I could about how all those products that I love to collect actually come to be. The first thing I want to touch on right out of the gate is a fairly common misconception. That merchandise with images of cartoon characters on it is a late-stage development in the industry. Oswald was one of the first uh, merchandise, character merchandise that they uh, did. He was on a candy wrapper, and um, it raised awareness of Oswald. And so, you know, look at posters that were created for the films and all. Again, it was all to raise awareness of the characters, and ultimately the films were more successful. That's Michael Labrie, director of collections and exhibitions at the Walt Disney Family Museum. If you listen to the second episode in this series, you may recall Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which was a character that Walt Disney came up with before Mickey Mouse. Oswald first appeared in the short Trolley Troubles in the fall of 1927, so tying characters to merchandise goes back almost 90 years. But initially, it was definitely more about marketing than making money. I think, you know, Walt realized that there really wasn't much profit in the early merchandise. I think he really was satisfied with publicity generated, that it was valuable publicity for the characters, and as I mentioned, ultimately making the films more popular. There were posters for Laugh-A-Gram in the 1923, Alice Comedies, uh, Winkler Productions also featured posters as early as the 1920s with Disney characters. My producer Noel and I recently visited the Walt Disney Family Museum, and one of my favorite exhibits there is a display of Mickey Mouse merchandise from the very beginning of the mouse's life. That's cool stuff. So, uh, when we spoke with Michael, he talked a lot about the early merchandising of Mickey, and it's really quite astonishing. Everything from bicycles, like little tricycles, to even a child-sized movie camera uh, that looks as much for an adult as a child it is not um, small potatoes in terms of its design there are tiny figurines there are coloring pages timepieces so many watches and clocks there's just everything you could almost possibly imagine like certain, radio? What is that? yes it is a tiny mickey mouse radio with him i think it is wood but he is playing um what looks like a stand-up bass on it although since he's a mouse for all we know it's a violin. (laughs) I know when I'm talking with friends and the topic of licensed products comes up, which it does in my circle of collector nerdery, I find that there's almost a level of suspicion about it. 
I have a house full of Star Wars action figures and other toys, and a lot of my friends collect something or another. I have heard all kinds of people speak wistfully about the empty boxes that were sold at Christmas in 1977 for Star Wars figures that would be sent later because Kenner wasn't up to speed on producing the toys yet. R2-D2, Chewbacca, Luke, and Princess Leia. They're the Star Wars early bird set of figures. These four action figures are not yet available, but this Star Wars early bird certificate package is in stores. And that's obviously a move to cash in on holiday sales. But specifically when it comes to toys or collectibles associated with animation, words like cash grab start to enter the conversation. I'm rich! I'm wealthy! Yahoo! I'm comfortably well off! There's a general distrust of branches of business that are tied to art, but are designed to make money. And of course the goal is to make a profit. That's how business works. But it's good to keep in mind that the money made from licensed products is part of the funding that gets used to make more animation, just like the ads that you see in video content are keeping productions funded. I wanted to demystify this whole process a little bit, so I reached out to a few people involved in licensing to find out just how this whole thing works. It's a business that people don't know a lot about. Nobody grows up saying, I want to get into licensing because they don't know what it is. Um, But it happens to be a business that affects $260 billion plus of retail sales globally each year. And um, so it's it's this invisible business that is highly lucrative and, and very substantial. That's Marty Brockstein. He's the senior vice president at the International Licensing Industry and Merchandising Association, which is also known as LIMA. As you might have gathered, he is an expert when it comes to licensing and merchandising. From sports leagues and franchises to entertainment companies and even fashion houses, if it can be trademarked, Lima is interested. And here's how a licensing deal works in Marty's words. So it's a pretty straightforward process, sort of. A uh, company owns a piece of intellectual property. It could be called Mickey Mouse. It could be called a Tommy Hilfiger logo. It could be called a New York Yankee logo. But uh, a company owns that piece of intellectual property. And um, a potential licensee who might be a betting manufacturer or a toy company wants to use that logo or some of the imagery for a product. So what they're doing, in essence, is renting it. They're going to pay a royalty to the intellectual property owner. And so for every piece that they sell, they're going to uh, give a percentage of that to the IP owner. The licensee then is responsible for developing product, marketing it, and selling it to a retailer who will then resell it to the consumer. And at every stage along the way, any question about licensing can be answered with Two words. It depends. Jake, what time is it? Uh, get on ahead. Adventure time! Get, get ready, ready Ice King, King for battle. battle! And then Jake, you'll never take me alive! Come over here and say that to my fist! Adventure time toys! Pete Yoder is the head of Cartoon Network Enterprises. That means that he runs the division that handles all the licensing and merch for Cartoon Network and Adult Swim brands. So that's everything from what would be traditionally known as like hard lines, which are toys, collectibles, sporting goods, 
soft lines, which are, you know, your traditional T-shirts and uh, home decor sheets, bedding, um, as well as also the home entertainment side of the business. So um, DVDs, electronic sell-through, so, you know, iTunes, um, Amazon, Google. To build on what Marty told me about a basic licensing deal, Pete walked me through the process once the deal is signed. For instance, we sat down with Playmates and the show creators, um, walked through everything, and then from that side, walked through everything that's coming up with the show team and what's coming up in the new season, and then we'll go back with then Playmates, work with their designers as well as our toy designers, and help to start crafting what that line looks like. Everything from action figures to role-play items. One of the big things with Ben 10 is he has this uh, Omnitrix, which is this device he wears on his wrist that gives him the ability to transform into 10 different super aliens. We're here to give you in-depth instructions on how to use your Omnilink Omnitrix and help us defend the Earth from intergalactic harm. Wait, what? You ever hear of Kyber? Vilgax? Dr. Psychobos? Yeah, they're bad guys. Exactly. Let's get your training started. So, you know, making sure that what happens in the show, we're able to capture some of that magic in the product line itself. So then once that line is developed to a point where the toy company Playmates is ready to start going into sculpting and manufacturing, at that point then we'll start really kind of getting into the nitty-gritty on the details, making sure that all of the sculpts that come across our desks are as close to what kids are going to see on screen. Again, so kids can really kind of capture that magic that they see on screen. And then once the prototypes are made off of those sculpts, then we start presenting that into retail. Powerpuff Girls fighting crime! Bubbles, Blossom, and Buttercup! Let the adventure begin with the Powerpuff Girls! Help! And their flip-to-action playset! Bubbles' bedroom flips to the professor's lab! Let's see that again! Wow! Amazing! And what does the licensing process look like from the perspective of the toy makers? I talked to toy industry veteran Neil Friedman to find out. Today, the content is there's so much content, and whether you're looking at it on, on YouTube or on TV, on a tablet, on your phone, it's, it's so hard to determine which one uh, you're going to choose. But ultimately, what you do is you decide who's going to give it the most exposure. Does this fit with the types of categories and products you're doing? And it doesn't follow the values that your company has. And, and that's kind of the decision-making that you do. And you say, you know, can I make a fun toy out of this? And is this just something that a child's going to want to play with? Neil's instincts about what children will like come with legit credentials. He is currently the CEO and president of Alex Brands. <laughs> and he is the man who brought Tickle Me Elmo to market. It was actually designed by his wife. And while these projects are ultimately about business, Marty Brockstein was very clear that to make a successful product, there is one key element that has to be the focus. The most important word in the whole equation is emotion. That emotion might be an identification with a character, a love for a character that a child might have. It might be a trust in a classic consumer brand because, oh, my mother used that brand when I was growing up, and, and I really trust that to do the job it's supposed to do. It might be a sense of humor. It might be an appreciation for a picture. But at the heart of all this is emotion because without that, then why should anybody shell out hard-earned money to buy a product. 
A big part of that equation is the audience forming an emotional connection to stories and characters. It's a massive industry. It all starts with good characters, if we're talking about the entertainment part. It all starts with good characters, good storytelling, something that appeals to children, to the parents, to a target segment that uh, makes them go, wow, that's really exciting. I want a piece of that. The turbo bat plane soars at breakneck speed. It's Catwoman. Fearing the killer claw, she leaps to safety. This feline's got her own set of claws. But Mechwing Batman can rise above this cat fight. He fires. The Edelman figures sold separately. Another theme that kept coming up was the idea that the merchandise that's made to go along with a cartoon or an animated feature has to keep the story of its property going. And in the case of toys, it has to draw children into that story. A good plush or action figure or doll makes it easy for a kid to act out their own adventures and blend existing stories with their imaginations. I have a very distinct memory of just needing that strawberry shortcake snail cart when I was a kid. The strawberry shortcake snail cart is neat. Strawberry shortcake can ride on the seat. Because way before I even had the toy, I was planning all of the deliveries that Blueberry Muffin was going to make to all my other toys with it. For the property to begin with, there has to be an element of storytelling. And then that extends into the product because the product is a communications platform as much as anything else. And, you know, it allows the child to extend the story into their own play pattern, to use the business term. So the creativity that goes into it, the amount of thought that goes into it, just to create a product that resonates. And the magic of this business is that some of the biggest successes ever came at least somewhat under the radar. Adventure Time is a really good example of that. Do you remember when suddenly any con you went to was just full of people wearing fin hats? That's really the fun stuff, is when one plus one equals five. And you, you have something that really resonated with the consumer, the products were well done, and then boom, that magic happens in a business sense. And everybody feels, wow, this is a really great thing. That idea of conveying story is important even when it comes to products that you might not think of in that way. Pete Yoder told me he's not afraid to set people straight about this misconception. You know, a lot of people just look at that as kind of like the technology standpoint of, okay, well, yeah, but you're talking toys and video games, but a t-shirt is just slap on art. And, you know, I, I always kind of contradict them on that and say it's not. Like, you can still tell the story and still relay the, you know, the comedy or the action through the art you tell on a t-shirt or through a printing process or, or something of that sense. My sister's in trouble. Hard to get it. Everything okay, bud? I'm not sure yet. Cool boy. How much time and money do you think they plopped into this commercial, huh, Morty? Yeah, no kidding. Can somebody say overkill? There is also an inherent danger of oversaturation, of course. I think most of us have seen some show or movie or trend take off, only to see the market so glutted that it actually starts to turn consumers off. 
Futurama made a joke about how much merchandise Matt Groening's other show, The Simpsons, generated. When the Planet Express crew visited a garbage ball that was hurtling through space in the season one episode, A Big Piece of Garbage, they actually found a pile of Bart Simpson dolls on it. Some Bart Simpson dolls! Eat my shorts. Okay. Mmm, shorts. Humanity had grown so tired of Simpsons merch that they started just shooting it into space. And Marty likened it to a classic piece of advice for entertainers. I think probably more of the issues come with the companies try to do too much and they overwhelm the marketplace. It's very easy to kill something that could have lasting uh, market presence by just totally swamping the market initially and you know, there's an old showbiz maxim, always leave them wanting more. Uh, sometimes uh, companies forget that. Have you ever wondered about how animators feel about their work being turned into toys, apparel, and other consumer goods? Well, it's extremely flattering, I mean, to say the least, that you have not only a national audience, you really have a worldwide audience. That is Andreas Deja. He is a legend, literally. He has a Disney Legend Award, which means that his work is recognized as having made an extraordinary contribution to Disney. He worked for 30 years at Disney as an animator, and he designed some of the most iconic characters of all time, including Scar from The Lion King, Jafar from Aladdin, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, and the title character for Hercules. He has seen his work made into literally thousands of products. I've traveled for the company. You know, I usually did was part of the openings uh, for any of the films that I worked on in Germany and France and the UK and sometimes Japan and all of those places. So you get a sense how the stories and the characters are coming through there. And it's just amazing, uh, uh, especially with Lion King. We had no idea that it would sweep the whole planet like it did. We knew it was going to be good, but we also saw flaws in it. We always see flaws in our films and work. But then to see something like that take off is just absolutely incredible. Any transition of a design from the 2D world to the real world is tricky, no matter how careful the execution. And artists are keenly aware of what happens to their art once it is in the hands of others. Publicly humiliated. Why, it's more than I can bear. More beer? What for? Nothing helps. I'm disgraced. In terms of merchandise, We're a little skeptical sometimes. If they don't look exactly like we drew them, we don't like it. (laughs) But sometimes they they just hit it right on. Like the Jafar costume for the parks looks exactly like I drew him. So that's a real winner, I think. That brings us to theme parks. The world is a carousel of colors. You really can't talk about theme parks based on animation without bringing up the many Disney parks throughout the world. Not only is there Disneyland and Disney's California Adventure in Anaheim, California, there's also Walt Disney World and its four parks in Florida, Tokyo Disney Resort in Japan, Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disneyland, and the Shanghai Disney Resort. The Disney name has become associated with vacation destinations just as much as it has with animation. But it all started with Disneyland and a fairly simple idea. This is not Santa's workshop. It's just one section of a creative world where new attractions for Disneyland are conceived. 
Now, a great deal of time, sweat, and a few tears were expended on all this, but there's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities which become a part of Disneyland. Now, we've just been... While producer Noel and I were visiting the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, I pointed out one of the pieces that they have on display that might not look like much, but it's an important part of the story of theme park history. This bench at the end makes me cry. It's the bench Walt used to sit on while his girls rode a carousel. It's from a park that he used to go to with them all the time. And it's actually the place where he got the inspiration to build his own theme park because he thought theme parks should be pristine and beautiful and like this magical safe place for families to go. It's Walt's bench, so I cry every time. And you can sit on it. Uh-huh. You should sit on it, Holly. I will, and I'll cry. Do it. Because I did last time. Today, the idea of total immersion in an environment like a park has expanded. Right alongside Disney parks are Universal Studios that recreate the worlds from the Harry Potter series. Then we come to realize wonder can be real after all. Almost maximum. Or in the animation arena, Universal has a mini recreation of Krusty Land from The Simpsons. Hey kids, who do you love? Happy! How much do you love me? Thomas the Tank Engine and Hello Kitty have parks themed around them as well. And Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network have theme park attractions around the globe. I gotta get in that pool, man! What am I supposed to do with this? Surf, Daddy-o! Marty Brockstein gave me insight into how that idea of immersion even has a new name within the industry. Another thing that's happened is that one of the growth areas of the business has nothing to do with product. It's, you know, we refer to it as experiential licensing. You might go into a Cartoon Network section of a theme park in Dubai. You might go to Ferrari Land, um, which is a theme park in Spain that's built around the Ferrari racing brand. So there are lots of these experiential things that companies are getting into, which is increasing the licensing business. Okay, it's clear that this industry is massive. $260 billion a year is serious business. But why are consumers willing to spend that money? Why do we love licensed stuff so much? According to Pete Yoder, it's two things, community and creativity. It's really one of the few tangible ways that you can really experience a brand. So you might absolutely love a show or love a video game, um, but it's very, you know, there aren't other ways that you can experience that. So I think from a fan standpoint, you know, wearing a Rick and Morty t-shirt, I think there's something that's kind of a badge of pride and there's something that kind of links you with a community of other people that are huge fans of Rick and Morty. And that's the way the news goes. I think on the kid side, you know, from the toy standpoint, obviously there's just kind of inherent childhood play patterns and needs um, that I think licensed merchandise helps them kind of fulfill. But then it also gives them the ability to kind of create their own stories and use their imagination on how they feel Um, characters and stories would play out. But as I can personally attest to, this stuff is absolutely not just for kids. Once again, Neil Friedman. Because they're aspirational and they're exciting to watch and the characters, personalities, and values ring home with what you aspire to do or be. 
And I think that's why you like one character over another. That's why you are enamored with certain characters is because they do suit your values and what your, what your aspirations are. And they're fun and it's exciting. And they, they go places and do things that you would aspire to go to and do if you could. And I think that's part of why you're, you're excited and enamored with it. Of course, grown-ups also probably want to recapture their childhood and gain back a little piece of the wonder they might not get in everyday life with the responsibilities that just come with adulthood. But I think adults, too, have a sort of aspirational attachment to things. Who doesn't hang on to that little piece of imagination about what it might be like to be a superhero? Something as simple as a shirt or a mug or even a rug can give that dream a tangible presence in your life. Pete told me a story about how toys from one of his favorite movie franchises and mine served as a cure for the summer doldrums and as a bridge from old content to new. You know, I was a huge fan of when I was a little kid. We had just moved, and I remember the only way we moved there uh, at the beginning of the summer, so my sister and I didn't know anyone in our neighborhood until school started, so we had basically two or three months of just the two of us. And I remember, like, the way that my parents would bribe us of, of kind of keeping us happy was every week we would get to go to our uh, toy store and I would get a, a Star Wars action figure from Kenner. And it was, like, the best thing in the world. And at that point it was, you know, you had Star Wars and then The Empire Strike Back was two years later, so there wasn't a series and there wasn't a lot of other things that could kind of help me um, feed, the, uh, feed the addiction um, until the next one came out. So, you know, those toys really helped to kind of fill that void for me before the next season series came out. And I think that that happens with a lot of licensed merchandise um, as well as it kind of gives them, you know, a, a, a way when they're not able to watch new content for some reason to be able to interact with, with their favorite brands. So at this point, I have a firmer grasp on how this side of the animation industry works, but I'm a curious person. And I'm someone who collects more things than I probably should. I've already mentioned Star Wars, and I've already mentioned Lilo and Stitch. I also collect anything related to Disney's Haunted Mansion, and I cannot resist anything that features Coco, the airplane bird from Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. So naturally, I had other questions. First, I wanted info about shows like G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe is there! G.I. Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. For a while in the 1980s, it was very common for shows to be made out of toy properties. That's actually because of a change in the law that allowed toy companies to do just that. So you had your He-Man, you had your G.I. Joe. In the late 60s, there was a Hot Wheels animated series. And ABC was forced to take it off the air because they said it was a half-hour commercial. That's Mark McRae. He's senior manager of programming operations for Adult Swim. And he's also the author of a book called The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, which chronicles the heyday of Saturday morning programming when cartoons reigned supreme. Interestingly enough, when the 80s shows, the G.I. Joes and the Thundercats and He-Man showed up, what I remember was that every now and then I would see a He-Man toy that absolutely made no sense to the storyline at all just kind of show up. 
on the episode. There was an episode of He-Man where he had to, they were going to Skeletor's evil headquarters, and they were using this mode of transportation that I'm pretty sure was a toy. And I'm watching them go, and I'm like, this is going to take forever because of the way that the, the toy was the way that the toy is created and the way that it was animated, it was just something that wasn't meant to move fast. But I guess for whatever reason, they needed to put the toy in the episode. The war between good and evil continues, and you can be a hero with He-Man. You can be a hero battling Skeletor in his all-terrain terror claw. You can be a hero with a big blasting bullet jet. I think that uh, the 80s was interesting that the toy companies finally got what they wanted. They were able to have a half-hour series that pretty much promoted their merchandise. Now, there were rules. Of course, you couldn't have a G.I. Joe commercial in a G.I. Joe series, but it didn't matter because G.I. Joe was coming on five days a week, and it was doing huge ratings. And so having a half-hour series is almost better than having the commercial because the presence of a G.I. Joe or He-Man is always there. Thankfully, the animation industry eventually shifted gears to focus more on original content rather than shows that were based on toy lines, though it's still pretty difficult to separate the two in the public's mind. Which brings me to one of my own personal problems of always wanting to have merch that features my favorite shows. Garnet, Pearl, Amethyst! Steven! What is it? Whoa, where's the fire? It's an emergency! You have to help me get rid of all the shirts and stop Buck from making more! Have the shirts come to life and possess the bodies of their wearers? Uh, no, they just... Are people catching on fire when they put on the magic shirts? No, no, they're, they're just... Are the shirts destroying the wearer's will to continue on in this mortal coil, thereby shutting down Beach City? No! They're... They're just using my art in a way I don't agree with. Oh. Oh, we'll pass. What? True confession, I own a lot of t-shirts with cartoon characters on them. I'm pretty sure I could wear one a day for a year and not have to ever do laundry. But I know not all of them are licensed. And I've always wondered what companies who own those characters think about items like these. Pete Yoder described what sounds like a really tricky balancing act. It's it's a challenge because we have such amazing, amazing fans. And I think a lot of these companies that have emerged now, and they're mostly online companies, are trying to celebrate fans and fan arts and their interpretation of characters. And I think, you know, we never want to stifle a fan and, you know, how they interpret our brands. And, And I think one of the things that we love about our fans is that they are so passionate about it that they're going out there and, you know, with social media and with kind of, the, the whole world being a lot smaller because of digital and social. You know, fans are sharing their artwork with the community, and, and it's just their way of expressing their love and their fandom for a brand. So in that sense, we never want to stifle that at all. I think where it becomes a challenge is that there are a lot of these companies that are emerging now that are allowing the fans to sell products. So it, it's no longer kind of a show of, their support or their love of a brand, it now becomes something that, you know, they're creating product, which is infringing on our IP, but it's also infringing on contracts and deals that we have with partners. 
and that is some of the challenges. I mean, some of the artwork is fantastic and it's amazing representation. So in that sense, we promote it and we, we love that they do that. It's one kind of the, the monetization of that where, you know, it really does start impacting on legitimate partners that we signed on board. It, it also enables us, you know, when, when this product is infringed, we're not sure of the quality, the end quality. So as much as the artwork is fantastic, if it's not a high-quality product, then, you know, we don't want that going out to our fan community who expects high-quality product of Cartoon Network and Adult Swim and, you know, might be disappointed for something that we haven't sanctioned, but at the end of the day has our characters on it. And then also, you know, there are, unfortunately, and this falls a lot more on the kids' side, um, although we do see it on the Adult Swim side as well, where there, you know, are interpretations that, you know, aren't necessarily ones that we would want on there, either interpretations that are mashups of other brands. So they might take a brand that we own and mash it up with a brand that Disney owns or a brand that Nickelodeon owns that is infringing on both of our rights um, and, and also might not be something necessarily that we want our brands associated with. And then sometimes there are interpretations that are necessarily in line with the way that we view the brand itself. For instance, there are a couple times where we've had artwork around Powerpuff Girls, which may be a little bit more risque than um, kindergarten girls should actually look like. So, you know, those are the times where, um, you know, we really have to take a hard line and go in and, and we never want to kind of stifle anyone's creativity. But in the same sense, we, you know, at the end of the day, we do have to protect our intellectual properties. It turns out there are also times when unlicensed goods show up in the hands of museum curators. This actually came up accidentally while I was speaking with Michael Labrie at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Then there was Charlotte Clark. She created dolls of Mickey in 1930, and ultimately she made almost all the characters. That was pretty amazing, and uh, working with uh, Kay Kamen, who is a master of merchandise, uh, teamed up with Walt to create so much of the merchandise that you see in our, in our museum and everywhere else in the world. <laughs> it all started there. I had told him that I recently purchased a pattern, licensed, to make the old-school 1930s-style Mickey and Minnie Mouse plush dolls. Here is his reply. That's interesting because um, years ago, we had a wonderful donor to the museum brought in their mini doll and it didn't look like any, the size and shape and everything looked exactly like the Charlotte Clark mini but this one had a blue dress and patterns and everything else and I said well who made this and she said well actually my grandmother made it from a pattern that she had purchased uh, I think it was in the 30s it was that early on so after yeah. Charlotte Clark do you, uh, does that pose a problem for you? Are you pretty good at IDing which ones are like maybe handmade copies versus which ones were the originals? Um, just something that's really obvious like that would be the uh, different fabrics. You know, it would look all sort of like blue and white. <laughs> it didn't look anything like anything you've seen in many. She didn't wear that. She had a secret closet you didn't know about. <laughs> So in that case, it would have been a completely innocent scenario where a fan-made item could potentially cause a little bit of confusion about the historical record. One of the other parts of this whole puzzle that has always fascinated me is how future generations might view all the licensed merchandise of our current era. And I got Marty Brockstein's take on that. 
I think every generation or every era's uh, truth tellers and soothsayers and, and, and anthropologists look at the day-to-day implements and uh, drawings that, you know, think of cave drawings. That gives us an indication of what, of what people were doing and thinking about then. You go to an antiquities museum. The magic of that is understanding or trying to understand what the ancient Greeks were doing and what their pottery looked like and things of that sort. I suspect that um, there will be some future generations down the road that kind of look at these things and go, well, that's interesting. What could that possibly have meant? So, so sure. I mean, I, I normally don't think these big thoughts, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the natural course of things. So perhaps one day, some future archaeologist will become convinced that the Powerpuff Girls had great cultural significance because they'll find my cache of shirts and toys. The city of Townsville is rocking to the fresh sounds of the new Powerpuff Girls CD, Heroes and Villains. Kick some crazy new school flavor with 13 original tracks by Apples and Stereo. to point out that just like every other part of the animation industry, the people I talked to who work in licensing and manufacturing and merchandise talked about how much they love their jobs. Pete Yoder told me that part of that excitement is getting to work on new things all the time and getting a really full view of the whole process. Each day is different, and I think that's what I love about the job is that you have your hands in so many different areas of the business that it keeps it exciting and that you're getting to see things from so many different perspectives from, you know, when we're signing a deal with a certain manufacturer to um, then actually helping to work on the creation of that product and then selling it into retail. You're really seeing kind of this 360 approach on how a product is made and then kind of sold to the end consumer. Once again, here's Marty Brockstein. Nobody grows up saying they want to get into licensing, but we're getting at them earlier and earlier because they're finding, gee, this is really interesting. You know, on the sports side, I'm, I may never play for the Yankees, but doing merchandising for Major League Baseball, you know, keeps me close to the sport and all that. I may never be an animator, but boy, isn't pop culture fun. So it's a, it's a way to get into the business. That one really stood out to me because it's almost the same mechanism that's at play in good product development. Just as licensors and manufacturers are making things so consumers can feel connected to the characters they know and love, people who work in licensing get to be a part of the industry and have a professional immersion in it. And speaking of being part of cartoons, the next episode is all about the voice actors who bring animated characters to life, and it is a wild and hilarious ride. If someone said, this guy sounds like he's always in a a big glass jar, you know, like a head in a jar, but I've done characters that are, like, contained, and so I would just shut my mouth, and I had this way of talking, like, let me out of here! Where did I get out of here? In the meantime, if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us at drawnpodcast.com. And that is also our handle across all of social media, Drawn Podcast. So visit us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and let us know what you think. 